Lord, why would you love a sinner like me? Why would you send Jesus to die the death I deserve? Why? It's a mystery. And so this morning as we open your word and we see the crucifixion of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the glory of the grace of Jesus, to who he is and what he has done for us, who will turn in him, turn to him in faith, all of it by his grace and for his glory. Speak, Lord, and may your people hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. It is always a privilege to sing with you. I love singing with you. And now I ask you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have a Bible for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, page 1013 in that church Bible. And let me just say on this Veterans Day weekend, as you're finding your place in your Bible, to our armed forces veterans, thank you. If you have served in the armed forces or if you have a family member, an immediate family member who has served in the armed forces, would you please stand? And let's show our appreciation to these people. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you so much for your sacrifice in securing and preserving the freedoms we enjoy here in America. Thank you for pointing us to the greatest sacrifice, the greatest love of all, the love and sacrifice of Jesus for us, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to be, to make a wretch his treasure, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That is where we will be this morning in our study of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, as Jesus fully and finally fulfills the purpose for which he has come, to be a ransom for sinners like you and me. Mark 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns they put on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour or 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers or two insurrectionists, maybe even murderers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of our God. This is the crucifixion of the Son of God. As a young boy, I was a budding artist. I loved drawing nature scenes complete with rolling hills and snow-covered trees and fence lines. I had sketch pads full of my work. And then one day in third grade, everything changed. I had sketched a bird, a cardinal, sitting on the branch of a crab apple tree, and I ran up to my art teacher's desk to show her my masterpiece. She looked at it for a moment and then looked up at me and said, what is that? Well, that was the day the art died. <laughs> One of the first axioms we learn as children is the old sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that isn't true. Words do hurt, and they sometimes leave deep bruises and deep scars that take decades to heal. Each of us, even this morning, can probably recall things said about us and to us years ago that still hurt today. Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus knows how that feels. The verbal abuse he endures during his crucifixion is unconscionable. And Mark wants us to know that. He doesn't shy away from that. In fact, he highlights that four different times in this text. In verse 20, the soldiers are mocking Jesus. Verse 29, people are railing on Jesus. Verse 31, the religious leaders are taunting Jesus. And in verse 32, even the criminals who are crucified on either side of him are reviling Jesus. So Mark is not focusing our attention on the pain of the cross but on the shame of the cross. Not on the physical anguish, but the emotional anguish. Jesus feels pain not just in his body, but in his soul. And that's essential because sin has affected every part of our being, not just our body, but our mind and our heart and our soul. We are broken people through and through. And so to free us from sin's effects in every part of our being, Jesus must experience the full scope of sin's effects in every part of his being. So when Jesus dies, 
He pays the price for our sins in full because he absorbs the effects of our sin in full. That's why he does cry out with his last breath, it is finished. The price for sin is paid in full and forever. So the big idea of this scene in Mark 15 is that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior for all His people. Now I know your notes and I know the screen says that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior for all His people. And that's when you know that I am tweaking my sermon until the moment I get up here. He's not just an all-sufficient Savior. He's the all-sufficient Savior for all His people. You see, this scene shows us what it looks like and feels like and sounds like for Jesus to be the ransom for our sins. And when I come to Jesus in faith alone, this is what I'm spared because this is what Jesus took. So when others mock me and shame me and condemn me, I I look to the cross where Jesus proves that He will have the final say with me. That's why we read in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. When Jesus takes all our condemnation for us, He takes all our condemnation from us. Every last drop and replaces it with grace. That's what's going down when Pontius Pilate delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus has just been scourged. His torso has been laid open. Ribbons of flesh would be falling and hanging from his back as the Roman soldiers lead him away from the crowd in front of Pilate's palace and they lead Jesus into Pilate's palace where a battalion of 600 soldiers are waiting for one man. They all want a piece of him. So before they kill him, they're going to taunt him. And like a clouder of cats with a mouse, they're going to toy with him. Hey, Jesus, let's cover your bloodied body with the purple cloak. It's a a royal robe for the man who calls himself king. And guess what? We've got a crown for you, too. Because every king has a crown and they laugh at Jesus as they twist together that crown of thorns and then they crown Jesus with it. Thorns pierce his forehead and puncture his temples. Then they step back and mockingly salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Oh, Jesus, we, we almost forgot. You need a scepter because every king has a scepter. And while spitting in his face, they beat Jesus over the head with that scepter. And with every blow, the crown of thorns digs deeper into his brow. And then they bow and laugh. They pay fake homage. 
He's their clown. He's not their king. Oh, but he is king. He is the king, the king of kings. But they miss it. They're blind to it because he isn't their kind of king. He's a unique king because as the song says, how many kings have stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a soul, uh, romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. Only one beaten for me and mocked for me and toyed with for me. This is what the punishment for my sins looks like and feels like and sounds like. So let us not treat sin like these soldiers treat Jesus. Sin is not a game. It's life and death serious. So let's guard against underestimating the seriousness of sin in our lives because Romans 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Not just any death, this kind of death. Horrific, shameful, painful death. So a little white lie isn't so little or white. Taking God's name in vain isn't just a slip of the tongue. If you're married, messing around with a coworker isn't just flirting. Your angry outbursts aren't just losing your cool or flying off the handle. Those little cliches we've coined to soften the seriousness of our sin, we're playing word games with the sins Jesus is paying for here Sin is infinitely serious, and that's why grace is infinitely costly. So costly that Jesus' suffering for sin isn't done yet with verse 20. It's only just begun when those soldiers rip that royal cloak off of Jesus and put his bloodied clothes back on his bloodied body to parade him through the streets of Jerusalem while he carries his own cross. As Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, he is being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Because part of the humiliation of a crucifixion was being forced to walk through town carrying your cross in front of the crowds with a sign hung around your neck stating your crime, Jesus would have read, King of the Jews. And as he is paraded through the streets as a laughingstock, he begins to falter beneath the load of that crossbeam he's carrying. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the omnipotent, all-powerful king is stumbling and faltering and falling. He can't go up. He hasn't slept in more than 24 hours. He's endured a beating from the religious leader, a scourging from the Roman soldiers, and the crown of thorns he's wearing is all, it's all taking a toll on him. He's physically and emotionally spent. And when he falls to the ground, 
the soldiers grab a man from the crowd. Simon of Cyrene. He's a guest in town. He's been living abroad in Libya. Maybe he's a Jew who's here for Passover and and he's heading to the temple to slay a lamb for the covering of his sins. And maybe, maybe as he takes the cross from Jesus, the blood of the lamb runs down his face. Blood that's being shed for his sins. Because it seems that Simon comes to believe on Jesus. Notice how Mark introduces him and identifies him here in the text. He identifies Simon of Cyrene as the father of Alexander and Rufus. And for the first century readers of Mark's gospel, their names mean something. And perhaps that's why Mark is including them here. Because in Romans chapter 16, the apostle Paul sends his greetings to a man named Rufus. Which means we have good reason to believe that Simon and his sons, Alexander and Rufus, become followers of Jesus. And so Simon is carrying the cross of the man who will carry him into eternity. And he carries that cross all the way to the place called Golgotha, the place of a skull, where soldiers offer Jesus some wine mixed with myrrh. It's a narcotic to take the edge off his pain. But Jesus refuses it. He will not drink it. That, that doesn't mean that painkillers are inherently sinful. When I broke my ankle 20 years ago, I was, I was deeply thankful for morphine. But when I began hugging everyone in the ER, Joanna asked that they remove my IV. So why does Jesus refuse the painkiller? Here's why. To demonstrate the depth of God's love for us, Jesus must endure the full horrors of God's wrath against our sins. He must be fully aware of it. He must fully feel it. As Psalm 69 verse 21 says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. But for me, Jesus refuses. For me, Jesus feels all the pain, all the rejection, all the shame. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. And for us to taste that love and to experience that love, Jesus must feel all the searing pain that's shooting through his body when the nails are driven into his hands and feet, which is pain that is magnified and intensified as the cross is lifted and then dropped into a hole in the ground. But again, it isn't the physical anguish that Mark is emphasizing here. It's the emotional anguish, the humiliation, the shame, because the soldiers have robbed Jesus of his clothing. 
And now they're playing games with it at the foot of his cross. They're gambling for it. They want a souvenir to take home to show their wife and kids. They have no idea that they are actually fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 18, which says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So when Jesus is crucified on this Friday at 9 a.m., God's good purposes are not being thwarted. They're being fulfilled. God called this. He prophesied this time and time again in the Old Testament. He promised this would happen. So do not look at this scene and think that God is somehow disconnected from His Son's suffering. And in the same way, He's not disconnected from our suffering. It's all directed by His loving hand for His glory and for our good. This scene proves it's all going according to plan. Even when the inscription above Jesus' head is intended to add to the mockery of Him, here hangs Jesus, the King of the Jews. Laugh, mock, scorn, ridicule. But that inscription actually speaks the truth about Jesus. He is the king of the Jews, even though it's a Jewish crowd that's passing by him, railing on him. It is crazy. I'm not sure how many of you are old Western fans. You watch John Wayne and the Westerns on television, and you'll see this principle playing out, that when there's an execution, people come out of the woodwork to see it. They're passing by Jesus. They're railing on Jesus. And the Greek word here in verse 29 actually means that they're blaspheming Jesus. They're blaspheming the one they accused of blasphemy. They're cursing at him. They're calling him every name in the book. Every bad word they can think of. They are throwing at him while wagging their heads at him. It's like what some of you ladies can do. Now, this is not a dig, all right? So, so please stick with me here. This is not a dig. Some of you ladies, man, you have this God-given uncanny ability to wag your head while keeping your neck perfectly still. You know what I'm talking about, guys? And we husbands, we, we get that. We, we see that. It's, it's like when we take that pickle jar from you, thinking we can wrench it open with our bare hands, and when we can't, you pull out that rubber jar gripper, and with one twist, you open it, and here comes the head wag. Here comes the... That's these people with Jesus. But they're not joking with Jesus they're hating on Jesus. They're wagging their heads at him while they sneer at him. <sighs> Here hangs the one who said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But again, they're twisting Jesus' words. He never said that. 
What he did say is that his temple, his body would be destroyed, and in three days he would rise again. And the irony here is that the people who are cursing at Jesus and hating on Jesus are fulfilling the word of Jesus. It's Friday, his body is being destroyed, but Sunday's coming. And there's a lesson here for us. As followers of Jesus, God calls us to show mercy like Jesus. He shows great mercy here. I mean, Jesus is the one who shut down demons and disease and even death. He could shut down these people in the blink of an eye with a single word. But instead of giving them what they deserve, he gives them what they don't. Mercy. You probably have people in your life like these people in Jesus' life. Classmates or coworkers who are relentlessly deriding you for your faith in Jesus. Or maybe it hits closer to home. Maybe for you it's your spouse or your child or a parent. They roll their eyes. They wag their head. They point their finger and they curse at you. And it hurts. See Jesus on the cross, showing mercy to the merciless. He's doing what he calls you to do in Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And in showing mercy to the crowd that's hating on him, Jesus is winning for you the ability to show mercy to those who hate on you even when it's coming at you in waves because that's what Jesus is facing here. While the crowd is railing on him, the religious leaders begin taunting him, daring him to prove that he really is the Messiah. They throw down the gauntlet to Jesus. Just pull the nails from your hands and feet. Come down from the cross and we'll bow before you as the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel. Come on, Jesus, you saved others. Let's see if you still got it in you. Save yourself, and we'll believe in you. That's what they say. But that isn't what they do, because this is a satanic taunt. This is the devil coming at Jesus one last time. These religious leaders are echoing Satan's taunt and temptation of Jesus back in the wilderness at the outset of his ministry when Satan says to Jesus, hey Jesus, just jump off the pinnacle of the temple and your father will send angels to catch you before you go splat on the cobblestones below. Just save yourself, Jesus. And just as Jesus refused Satan then, he refuses the religious leaders now. He will not come down off that cross and save himself. And in one sense, what the religious leaders say here is correct. He can't. Because he must finish his father's work. He must give himself as a ransom for many. But do not look at this scene and think that Jesus doesn't have the power to. It's not that he can't because he doesn't have the strength. It's that he won't 
because he must complete the Father's work. He must die in our place. He must rescue us from the grip of Satan forever. Listen, listen, please. As a follower of Jesus, the cross proves that Satan and his minions have no power over you. You are free from Satan's grip because you are forever in Jesus' grip. And if you struggle to believe that, that the enemy's attacks seem too strong, if he's throwing past sins in your face as the accuser of the brothers, grab an index card this afternoon and write the words of Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15 on it. Post it on your fridge or on your bathroom mirror, on your car's dashboard. These verses promise that because Jesus dies, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside our law-breaking, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and his demons, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. You see, at the cross, the devil wasn't just disarmed. He was defeated. His head was crushed. And so when you wrestle against him, you aren't fighting for victory. You are fighting from victory. A victory won by Jesus through his cross, even when the verbal hatred for him comes from the two criminals who are crucified with him. Here hangs Jesus. Between two thieves, two insurrectionists, perhaps even two murderers. And in doing so, Jesus is fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. Two men who had taken life, and between them hangs the one man who can give life by laying down his life. And as they are hanging there with Jesus, they each turn on Jesus, reviling him, mocking him. The verbal attacks are coming at Jesus from every angle and every level, from upper crust religious leaders to bottom-dwelling criminals. Why? Why? Why does Jesus hang there and take it? The shame that is being heaped on him, why does he endure it? That's the question. What are the implications for us from Jesus hanging on a cross, shamed, mocked, ridiculed for our sins? Here are two implications from this scene. Number one, Jesus dies to free us from the shame of our sin. Jesus dies to free us from the shame of our sin. Listen, this is a kind or the kind of shame you should feel. You know, sometimes in the therapeutic culture in which we live, people say that shame is always bad, but it isn't. God wired our consciences in such a way 
that we should feel shame when we sin. Just like Adam and Eve feel shame when they sin and they run and hide from God. They're ashamed. It's objective shame that's the result of objective guilt. We sin. We look at that. We say that. We think that. We do that. We have disobeyed God. And our conscience condemns us. We feel exposed. We want to hide. We are ashamed. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. On the cross, Jesus bears in his body and feels in his soul the shame of our sin. When he takes our sin upon himself, he is subjecting himself to the shockingly shameful treatment our sins deserve so that, so that we no longer run from him in shame, but run to him for grace. Have you? Have you run to Jesus? You see, this scene is here not to pressure you to pity Jesus but to call you to run to Jesus and to believe on Jesus. Have you? Have you heard him calling in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Stop working your lives to the bone, trying to work your way into my Father's good graces. Try, stop trying to do good to erase the evil that you have done. You can't do it. Only I can. That's why I'm hanging here in shame. It's your shame. And my shame, it is not his shame. And that's why we could never work our way. We could never do enough or be enough or give enough. And that's why Galatians 3 verse 26 says that it's by faith that we are the children of God. So Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you? Will you come to him? You say, Pastor Ken, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know the thoughts I've, I've thought. Okay. But I want you to know something. If you'll go to Luke chapter 23 sometime today, you will see that one of these criminals hanging beside Jesus who've been hating on him and launching verbal assaults at him as they're dying with him, one of those criminals looks to Jesus and says, you know, we're getting what we deserve. You're taking what you don't deserve. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus will say the same to you when you come to him in faith. Because in his death, he identifies with us at our worst and at our weakest, 
Because secondly, Jesus dies to free us from the shame of our misplaced shame. You say, Pastor Ken, you just lost me right there. I have no idea what you're talking about, no idea what you mean. Listen, let me explain. This is the kind of shame you shouldn't feel. Misplaced shame. It isn't tied to objective guilt or to actual sin. And so you may feel shame because you were physically or sexually abused and your abuser looked at you and said, it's your fault. Or you've been shamed by others for doing what is right and not joining with them in doing what is wrong. You won't cheat on the exam. You won't lie for the boss or you've been shamed because of your big ears or because you don't drive a cool car or because you don't speak English well. None of that shame is due to any, any sin on your part, but the feeling of shame is just as real. Jesus helps us with that misplaced shame by identifying with us at our weakest. So when you are shamed by others and humiliated by others, you consider the one, you consider that the one you worship is also shamed and humiliated. And so he is able to sympathize with you and come alongside of you and say to you, I know what it's like to be shamed. I know how it feels when it feels like the whole world is staring at you and laughing at you. I know. And when Jesus faces the shame he doesn't deserve, he shows us how to respond when we face shame we don't deserve. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despises the shame that is heaped upon him. That means he disregards it. He counts it as nothing he doesn't let it get to him. He doesn't let it stop him. How? By focusing on the joy that is set before him. The glory that is coming for him at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knows something. He knows that these people who are shaming him for our sins won't have the final say with him. His father will. And the same is true for us. When we feel that misplaced shame beginning to take a hold of us, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He has the first word and the final word, which will be this word with us. Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. What a shame-free day that will be for me. Because he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed forever. All because Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior for all his people. Amen. Father, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray at the end of a sermon like this. Except to pray, may Jesus be made much of. May grace win. And may you, the Father, be glorified in and through these people. In Jesus' name, amen.